Welcome, friends, to the Clayhouse Gospel Hour. My name is Pastor Steve, coming to you from the Pacific Northwest. I pray that wherever and whenever you are listening to this, it finds you well. I pray that God will bless you in our time together, and that as a result of it, you will be drawn nearer to Jesus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clayhouse Gospel Hour. Um, we're going to continue our study today in 1 John. We're going to go into chapter 2 and we'll discuss those things. Um, I'm excited that you're here and let's uh, pray and then we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, we just pray now that as we do so that you would draw us closer to you and make us more like you so that we might walk in the light as you are asking us to do so. So, Father, now we pray that you bless our time, and we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get started with chapter number two. I'm going to just read through passages like we do, and then we'll talk about each passage and section as we uh, go along. So let's, uh, let's get started. John, 1 John chapter number two begins this way. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So let's talk about that little passage for a second. And, and perhaps in your copy of the Scriptures, um, it kind of has that first section attached to the last paragraph of chapter 1. Um, and some would argue that uh, these verses really should have been separated into uh, back into chapter 1, and then chapter 2 would start in what we see as verse number 3. But I would argue the fact that uh, this first uh, couple of verses here, these first two verses, are actually setting the stage for everything that we're about to hear going forward. Because without us understanding these two verses, we could get uh, confused or we could um, view the things that John is going to say in the rest of this chapter incorrectly. And so let me explain that a little further. So he gives us a few things here that we need to understand. The first of which is this. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now remember, he told us in chapter 1 that we will sin, and if we say that we don't have sin, then we call God a liar. So he's writing us these things, he's telling us this, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. As a matter of fact, we know that we will sin because we are human beings and we are totally depraved and our general nature is to do evil things. It is Christ in us, in us to do things that are good and righteous and holy and things that God wants us to do. But John knows, as you and I are well aware, because we exist in this world, that we will sin. So he's telling us, I'm writing things, the things that I'm about to tell you, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin, uh, because he's, what he's going to tell us is um, what it means to follow Jesus. He's going to give us a couple of ideas about that through this chapter. Secondly, he tells us this, know that because you are going to sin, uh, which he says, that, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. And so uh, when we do sin, uh, so we could think about this like in a court setting, that Jesus is our lawyer. He's the guy that comes up and tells God, yes, he sinned, but I paid the price and the penalty for his sin. And so Jesus is our advocate. That doesn't give us freedom and liberty to sin. It gives us freedom and liberty to do what is righteous because knowing that if we do and when we do sin, that Jesus is there to advocate for us, that should give us liberty to do those things which are right, not the liberty to do whatever we want. Thirdly, he says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. So you need to know that, number one, Jesus is your advocate. Number two, you need to know, or number three, you need to know that Jesus is your atonement. If you look at the word, write the word atonement down. If you look at it and separate it out into three parts, uh, and this is a way that you can kind of remember what atonement means, you can separate it into three separate words, at one meant. And so the idea behind atonement is that we have become one with God uh, through Jesus Christ. And so we are now not separated from God, but we can boldly go into his presence and he indwells us. And so if you think about that, we are always in the presence of God. And it is Jesus who is our atonement, who, or who has made us at one with God. And so that then is the stage setting for everything that we're going to talk about here going forward. Remembering that we will sin, remembering that Jesus is our advocate to the Father. He's the one that, that steps in on our behalf. And then number three, remember that it is Jesus that makes you at one with God. And so now we're going to continue on with what John is telling us to do, uh, understanding it in the light of what he has just told us. All right, let's take a look at uh, verse uh, three through six. Here's what the scripture says. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. And so John is going to tell us here a couple of things that we need to do. Number one, he tells us that we need to follow his commands. This is how we know, he says, that we know him if we keep his commands. Now, when we hear the word commands, a lot of us, uh, especially those that grew up in church, may think all the way back to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the 3,000 plus laws that the, um, that the uh, Jewish hierarchy piled on top of the hundreds of laws that God put into place through the book of Leviticus and things like that. And we say, wow, how are we going to keep all of that? But remember the teachings of Jesus and how Paul clarified those teachings for us and how Jesus said, Really, there's only two commandments, and the two commandments are love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And the second is like unto it, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you think about the Ten Commandments, they can be broken down into those two groupings. The first four 
are about loving God. The last six are about loving our neighbors. Uh, there's even a parable about who is our neighbor, and of course, that parable is the um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, where everybody walks past him, and finally the Samaritan comes by and sees the guy down in the ditch and pulls him out and tends to his wounds and puts him in a hotel and pays for um, his way and then tells the innkeeper, when I come back through here, if this guy has uh, racked up any more charges, let me know and I'll pay for it. And the idea behind the parable is that everyone is your neighbor. Every other human being in the world is your neighbor. And so you need to love them. So that's what he tells us here in the beginning. So number one, when we talk about following commands, it's not the letter of the law. But then in verse number uh, six, then, um, he, and then he goes on, you know, uh, if you say that you, uh, that you follow him, that you know him, but you don't follow his commands, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. But he says, uh, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is made complete, and this is how we know that we're in him. And then he tells us, this is how you know that you are in him. He says, the one who says he remains, or you, you might hear, have heard the word abide in him, walks just as he walked. So here's the key to following God's commands is to live like Jesus lived. Now that's a tall order. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I could say uh, to anyone that, yeah, I live just like Jesus lived. And he's also not talking about the fact that you have to live like a 33-year-old man in the first century uh, Middle East. What he's talking about is what did Jesus do? What did Jesus react? How did Jesus do the things? Oswald Chambers wrote a book, What Would Jesus Do? Um, uh, or coined that phrase, what would Jesus do? And the idea behind that is to think about as you are, uh, something comes into your path, whether it's a, a moral decision or just run into somebody that's hurting or, or suffering or whatever it is, what would Jesus do in that situation? Um, and so, that, that concept and that idea is how can then we live like Jesus? And then, of course, the rest of the, the chapter here is going to help us to uh, understand and, and uh, pull that out so that we can hear it. So let's move into chapter, uh, in verse number seven of chapter two. Um, so we can ask, you know, what are the commands and, and how are we supposed to do this? So he says, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but it's an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word, and you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so his commands are essentially this, love your brothers and sisters. He says this very clearly, if you love them, you walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means to live like Jesus, to walk just like Jesus walked. So how can we know that we're walking like Jesus walked? We have to love our brother and sister. Secondly, he says, if you don't love them, you walk in darkness. And so there's no really two ways about this. You either love your brothers and sisters walking in the light, 
or you do not love your brothers and sisters, and you walk in the darkness. Now let's pause for a moment and let's talk about the word love. The word love in the English language gets used for all kinds of things. I could say, um, I love my children. I love my wife. I love tacos. I love uh, any number of things. And everyone in the English language understands what you're saying. You really, really like those things. That is not what John is talking about here when he says that we have to love our brothers and sisters. Biblical love is putting the needs of someone else before your own. It's reaching down into the ditch when they've been robbed and beaten, pulling them out of the ditch, caring for their wounds, tending for their lives, and helping them along the way. It's also sharing the gospel message with them. It's putting their needs in front of each other. It's not agreeing with everything that everyone does. It's not wholesale allowing anybody to do whatever they want. Real, honest, biblical love is putting the needs of someone else first. Even if you disagree with them philosophically, theologically, uh, morally, it's putting their needs before your own. That's how we love our brothers and sisters. And he said, if you say that you love your brother and sister, but you are unwilling to put their needs before your own, then you actually do not love your brother and sister and you're walking in darkness. Now remember, remember the first two verses that we read. You will sin. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your atonement. The reason I remind you of that now is because there are such stark contrasts drawn here walking in light or walking in darkness, that what we may hear is walking in light equals saved, a follower, believer of Christ. Walking in darkness means lost, sinful, separated from God. John begins this section by reminding us that we will sin, that Jesus is our advocate, and that Jesus is our atonement. He reminds us of that so that we can remember that it is the difference between these two things is continually walking in sin or in the darkness and continually walking in the light. Now, I'm going to do, every morning I'm going to wake up and try to do my very best to walk in the light, to live just like Jesus walked. Because I am uh, at the core of my being sinful, uh, it is not always, I am not always going to be successful. And there will be days when I am not walking in the light, and there will be days when I am walking in darkness. That does not mean that I have lost my salvation or that I never was saved or that I'm a terrible human or a terrible person. It's just the thing that happens. And when it does, that's when we go back to God and we say, you know what? I blew it. I messed up. That was sinful forgive me of my sins. John already told us in chapter one that he is faithful and just to do so, and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then tomorrow we start again, and we try to walk like Jesus walked, walking in that light. But we have to understand what love means. Love means putting the needs of other people first, always willing to reach out and share that gospel message uh, and how the good news of Jesus Christ will change people's lives. Let's continue on. He's going to pause here for a moment and give us a little poem uh, about his reason for writing uh, the letter of 1 John. And there's some comparing and contrasting and back and forth with here. And so I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then I'm going to break it down into the, the three folks that he talks to uh, in this passage. 
Here's what it says. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is in the beginning, who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. So these are the reasons that he wrote. And so there's two sections here. It's the I am writing and the I have written sections that are separated by 12 and 13, and then finally in verse number 14. Then there are three groups of people that he writes to, children, fathers, and young men. Now, we have to understand that these three titles, children, fathers, and young men, are actually kind of representative of all of us. And as John was writing to a specific group of people, um, God was writing all of this to us. And so we're going to find ourselves in different places in our lives, sometimes even at different times. Uh, like I, I may have a, a month where I'm, I feel like I'm just a child uh, as in the context of this passage. And then some days I'm going to be the father and some days I'm going to be the young man. And it doesn't have anything to do with my chronological age or even my spiritual growth at the moment. It's just where I find myself uh, at this particular moment. And so let me break it down into the three. So to the children, he says, I am writing to you because you were forgiven, which means he's writing to us because we were forgiven. And we were forgiven not on our own account, but on account of Jesus's name. So he says, I'm writing you because you're forgiven. So the key there is for us to remember that we were forgiven that we are forgiven. Secondly, he says to the fathers, I am writing you because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Who is from the beginning? Jesus is from the beginning. Remember John in his gospel, the very first words that he wrote in his gospel message were, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so he, he's pointing back to the fathers, I'm writing to you because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. He says, I have written to you because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. So when we find ourselves in that older stage, that father stage, it's understanding that as we read through this letter and as we read through all of scripture, as a matter of fact, that he's writing to us because we have come to know the one who is from the beginning, which means that we're going to understand these writings and we're going to be able to be taught these writings because we have come to know the Father. We have come to know Jesus. We have come to know the Holy Spirit. And then the third group that he talks to is the young men. In verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you young men because you have conquered the evil one. And then he says in verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. Why? Because God's word remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. Here is the big bullet point of this section. 
if we want to understand our forgiveness, if we want to come to know the one who is from the beginning, if we want to conquer the evil one, there's only one way to do it, and that's to be strong. How are we to be strong? He tells us clearly, God's word remains in you. Now, this is a double point here so that you can understand. What is the word of God? The word of God is Jesus. What also is the word of God? It's the collection of 66 books that have been put together for us that we call the Bible. And so we need to uh, have God's word in us. And so if we want to be strong, conquer the evil one, know the Father, understand our forgiveness, we have to abide in the word, which is Christ and the scriptures. If we're going to abide in Christ, the scriptures have to abide in us. That's really important for us to understand. The scripture is our only book for um, faith and practice. It's the only rule book that we have, and it is paramount because everything that we know and understand about God and about Jesus comes out of this book. So understanding that the, the scriptures that you hold are inerrant, there's no errors in them, and that God himself speaks to you through these words in scripture. And it's a living book that is applicable to your daily life, even though it has been written over 6,000 years and it was completed 2,000 years ago or so. It is still impactful today and it still changes people's lives. That is how we stay strong. That is how we conquer the evil one. That is how we come to know the Father. That is how we come to know and understand our forgiveness. Now, John is going to switch gears just a little bit, and he's going to talk to us about the world, and he's going to give us a warning. And here's what he says. Uh, this is 15 through 17 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. He's giving us another earmark of those that have eternal life. And he's going to say a couple of really stark things that we need to understand. Number one, do not love the world. Number two, do not love the things in the world. Now, here's what he means when he talks about the world. He's talking about the world system. He's talking about uh, the way things are. So you can turn on the news and you can run through social media and you can look at all of the things that you want to look at. And what you're going to find is you're going to find a world that, that lifts up and encourages us to do the things that he tells us not to do in verse number 16. And you're going to read the scriptures, and you're going to hear from the word, and you're going to hear from the teaching of the Holy Spirit that the things that need to be lifted up are the things that have eternal um, purpose. And so if you lift up those things in the world, he says, that stuff is passing away. But if you do the will of God, you will remain forever. So what are the things that the world is lifting up, the world system and the media and uh, all the different organizations and groups and news and things that you read and uh, books that are written and even people that you talk to. What are they lifting up? Three things. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. And the third is the pride in one's possessions, or you may have heard it said this way, the pride of life. 
And so let's break those down into what those are. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is satisfying your body. In other words, uh, yeah, eat whatever you want. Um, do whatever you want. Take whatever you want. Drink whatever you want. Go wherever you want. Uh, just a, a total hedonistic lifestyle. That's the lust of the flesh. Making, In other words, making your body drive everything that you do. In other words, whatever my body wants, that's what it's going to get. And however that plays out in, in your thought processes, then that's just fine. And so he tells us that's called the lust of the flesh. John tells us don't do that. Secondly, we have the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is everything that you want that you can't have or that you don't have. And so maybe that's your neighbor's new truck or that's uh, a job that you wanted that you didn't get or uh, anything else. That's a, you know, a, a, another human that you want to have relations with that you uh, don't. Uh, all of those kinds of things. That's the lust of the eyes. It's the things that we see and it's the things that we uh, want but don't have. So you can think about this as the core essence of... Um, just looking for things that you don't have, and you've, you've got to let those things go also. Thirdly is the pride in one's possessions or the pride of life. The old bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins is false, and that is the pride in one's possessions or the pride of life. Jesus said it this way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And the idea here is, is that there are more important things than things. There are more important things than the house that you live in. There are more important things than the car that you drive. There are more important things than the clothes that you wear. There are more important things than your status. There are more important things than the number of likes that you get or how many listens that you have or how many shares that are out there. There's a lot more important things in the world. The really important things are the ones, the people that live in your home, the people that are a part of your church, the people that are part of your community, the people that are a part of your workplace. Those are the things that are important. Those are the things that we should be looking after and putting their needs before our own. That's loving our neighbor so that we can share the gospel and show them how Jesus has changed our lives and how Jesus can change their lives. That is the will of God, and he said, the person who does the will of God will remain forever. All right, let's look at the next section. He's going to talk a little bit about here about the last hour, and a lot of people like to read this section and immediately start talking about um, prophecy and the revelation and uh, Daniel and when the rapture is going to come or when the rapture is not going to come or, you know, has it already happened? Is it going to happen? All of these things. This is not what John is talking about in this section at all. But let's read it, and then we'll break it down. Here's what he says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. 
Who is the liar? If not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. And so here we understand exactly what he's talking about. Remember, the problem that John was addressing in the very beginning was Gnosticism. Gnosticism teaches us that flesh is evil or matter is evil and spirit is good. If you believe that way, Jesus could not have come in the flesh because if he did, then he would have been evil. And so John is telling us here uh, something broader than some kind of prophetic language about when the Antichrist is going to come because you need to understand that what the first thing that he tells us is uh, number one, there have been many antichrists, and there will be many more to come. And because we can see these antichrists, you need to realize that now already is the last hour. Now remember, John wrote this book in around AD 90. That was a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, and John said, we are in the last hour now. And so if he was in the last hour how much closer to the end are we still being in that last hour? What he's telling us, though, is that Antichrist, and he's going to define Antichrist for us, and I'm going to go with that in just a second, but there have been many, and there will be many more to come. And here's the real trick. When we think of the word Antichrist, we think of some political leader or some uh, spiritual leader or some whatever, but that's not what John is talking about. He's talking about people that you know personally, that are antichrists. They're antichrist. And so here's what he says. He says, um, you have an anointing from the truth. He's, oh, verse 22, who is the liar? If it's not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this one is the antichrist, the one who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father, and he who confesses the son has the father as well. So, let me speak perfectly clear here. The Antichrist, or someone who is in the spirit of the Antichrist, or who is Antichrist, is going to deny the Son. So anyone that says Jesus was a good man, he was a great teacher, he was a prophet among many prophets, uh, but he was not God, he is not God, and he did not come in the flesh, John very plainly says, if you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So if someone comes to you and says, yes, I believe in God, uh, I love God, but Jesus was not God, Jesus was a prophet, or he was a great teacher, or he opened the door for us so that we could walk through and do what God wanted us to do. All of those things, if they believe that to be true, they have denied the Son, and therefore they do not love God, and they do not have the Father. Now that's black and white statements, but we need to understand it because John is telling us, in this last hour, you are going to have to discern the spirit in which people come. And when they come and they teach you and they tell you and they talk to you, you have to discern the difference between that which is true and real and that which is a lie. 
And so he tells us here, we have an anointing from the Holy One, and we all know the truth. He said, I didn't write to you because you don't know the truth. What is the anointing of the Holy One? Jesus told us that the Spirit would come and he would guide us into all truth and that he would teach us, that he would convict us of our sins. So when we are indwelt, when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a transformation takes place. That which is old is passed away. That which is new comes to life. And we have the ability to discern right from wrong, good from evil, truth from lie, be not because of our own work or own merit, but because of the Holy Spirit that has anointed us to know and speak the truth. That's what an antichrist is. Someone that denies that Jesus Christ is God, that he did come in the flesh, that he did die on the cross, shed his blood for our sins, that he was buried in the tomb, that he was resurrected on the third day, that he overcame death, hell, and the grave, and that he ever lives to intercede for us, that he is our advocate, and that he is our atonement. If they don't believe that, then they're liars, and the truth is not in them. That's what John said. Let's continue on. Verse number 24. We're going to go from 24 all the way into 29. 24 says this, What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has been taught you, remain in him. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And so this passage and the, and the translation that I'm using uses the word remain a lot. I like the word that other translations use. It's abide. If we abide in him, then he abides in us. And it's the concept of abiding or remaining is that concept of remaining means to kind of stay with. Abiding means to be with, right? And so that's why I like that word abide a little better. But it means the same thing, essentially. So here's what he's telling us. Number one, eternal life is us remaining or abiding with him and him remaining or abiding in us. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to work to keep your salvation or that you have to continue to do these things. Remember, John told us in the beginning, you will sin, Jesus is your advocate, Jesus is your atonement. Those things are still true. What it means is, is that as eternal life is secured by him for us, and we will remain in him, and he will remain in us. Secondly, um, and, and let me say this about eternal life. A lot of times when we talk about eternal life, we think about uh, you know, someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have eternal life. When I get to heaven, I will have eternal life. Or when Jesus returns, I will have eternal life. 
No, you have eternal life beginning immediately upon your acceptance of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are remaining in Him and He is remaining in you and your eternal life begins at that moment. You are at one with God because of what Jesus did uh, for you on the cross. And that begins immediately when you receive Him as Lord and Savior. And then that life never, ever ends. Secondly, uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then becomes our teacher and our witness. It says here that he will teach us about all things. And what he's going to tell us is true, and it's not a lie, uh, just as uh, it has taught you, remaining in him. So that anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, he teaches us. It's how we're able to understand the scriptures and apply them to our lives uh, in the way that God wanted us to understand them. The Holy Spirit teaches us things. When you hear a preacher on TV or even the preacher at your church, and he says something, um, and it sounds off to you, and you think, wow, that's really weird. That doesn't sound right to me. Let me study the scriptures more. It's the Holy Spirit that's coming to you and says, hey, look into this, dig into this, find out more about this. And it may not be that what he said was wrong. It might be that what he said was bigger than what you are capable of understanding at the moment. And so the Holy Spirit is guiding you uh, to dig into the scriptures so that you can understand it. Remember Paul said about the church at Berea, these were more noble than those at Thessalonica and that they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things which we taught were so. So dive in there, listen to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Third, we know that we were born of him because we remain in him. So if you, this is a testament of the Holy Spirit. In this last little section, it's a testament of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's a concept um, that we call the assurance of salvation. I know that I am saved. I know that I am at one with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I can know that because I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and he leads me and he guides me and he witnesses to me that we are at one with the Father. And so he's our teacher, he's our guide, he's our witness. And he illuminates scripture for us so that as we open the words and we read it, the light is shined from it and on it so that we can understand it and embrace it and bring it in. Now that brings us to the end of our chapter, but I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. The first is this, never forget the thing that he taught us in the beginning, is that we're going to sin, we're going to mess up, it happens to all of us. Secondly, know that Jesus is our advocate. When you do, ask the Father to forgive you, and Jesus will stand there and say, he's been bought by my blood. And then finally, remember that Jesus is your atonement. Jesus is the one that connects you to the Father and brings us back together in communion with him. And then the Holy Spirit comes into the scene and he teaches and he guides and he leads and he instructs and he illuminates. And so all of that works together for this one statement in the middle of this passage that I think is very powerful and we need to say it again. The one who says that he abides in Christ should walk just as Jesus walked. So my prayer for you, my prayer for all of us, is that we could walk like Jesus walked. Let me pray for us and we'll end our time together. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to study it. And Lord, we know that we are broken and depraved humans racked with sin, but we also know that you, as uh, we have accepted you as Lord and Savior, that you have indwelt us and that you are remaking us so that we might walk in the light and not walk in darkness. So Father, we pray that you continue the work that you started in us, that you would seal us until the day of redemption as you promised that you would. And Lord, we pray that we would always be able to walk like Jesus walked. Change us and make us more like you. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Clayhouse Gospel Hour. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, check us out on Facebook or email to clayhousegospelhour at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.